And tonight we have a special speaker. Bart R. from Sedona, Arizona, speaking at the 42nd Diker Height Group's anniversary in Brooklyn, New York, 2015. Enjoy. Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Here's Bart. My friend over here, Paul. Covered alcoholic, and I am certainly not a special speaker. I don't believe I don't believe that anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous is special. I'm a drunk. Um, I followed some directions in our big book, um, and because of a loving God and a way of life that this book, the big book, taught me, um, I haven't found it necessary or had any desire or thought of drinking since June 12th of 1995. Um, and that makes me a very small part of a huge miracle. The miracle is Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I like to say that I'm a recovered alcoholic. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a lot of statement in saying that I'm an alcoholic. And there's a lot of statement in saying that I'm recovered. And, and I say that I'm an alcoholic because it brings light to my darkness. Um, I will always be an alcoholic to the day I die. Um, I got in here with the, with the third tradition, the long form that says that in order to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, we must suffer from alcoholism. And I suffered from alcoholism. It also says that we have to want to recover from that. And that's a far cry from our short form, what we think says that we just have to have a desire to drink, and a desire is a want. I wanted a lot, I, I felt a lot more than just wanting to stop. A desire is a thought to achieve something that we can't achieve. And I wanted to stop drinking for a long time, and you'll hear that in my story, and I couldn't. And that describes a desire. I know a lot of people who just wanted to stop drinking may found it a little difficult, but they stopped. And that wasn't me. So I needed to do something about that. And Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a way, something to do to do that. Um, so I don't take that word desire very lightly. And I say I'm recovered because that brings light to you folks who are counting days. You know, you're not feeling too good. I've been there. You know, 20 years ago, I, I didn't, and, and for a long time prior to that, I didn't feel too good. And I didn't think there was any hope that it was ever going to go away. And I'm sitting here tonight to tell you that it goes away. If, if you, I can't sell God or this miracle short. To say we never recover, to say that we're going to be recovering for the rest of our life. Recovering is painful. I recovered from alcoholism. I recovered from a motorcycle accident. I recovered from a, a punctured spinal cord. Um, those things were extremely painful. To tell you that that's what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life is horrible. No thanks. Um, you can be free. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous offers, is freedom from alcoholism. This is probably the hardest thing in Alcoholics Anonymous for me to do. It's, it's definitely not my personality to speak in, in, in front of a lot of people. Um, there's a few friends here that know me 25, 30 years probably. Um, 
and they know that, I mean, that when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I came in in, in 1987. I didn't get better until 95. And from 87 to 95, I hung around meetings, and I had friends that said, I'll give you 20 bucks to raise your hand, and I, I couldn't even do that. Like, you could have given me a hundred bucks, I wouldn't raise my hand. Unfortunately, today there's lots of people that would offer me a hundred bucks to shut up, and I can't do that either. <laughs> and the reason I can't do that is because I believe that God speaks through me. This is a very, you know, Mark, Mark, my friend Mark put a real nice thing on the top of the flyer on the Facebook or whatever it was, saying that um, I carry the message in a very simple way that where others like to really complicate it. And I hope I really do carry it in a simple way, because it is a very simple program. What I, what I found works in this program is follow these directions and get the hell out of the way. You know, let God do the work. I think the first, the first great advice that my sponsor gave me in, in 1995 was, he said, Bart, I don't ever want you to wake up in the morning and say you're not going to drink today. And I thought that was absolutely absurd. You know, because I've been trying not to drink for years. Why would I stop trying not to drink? And he said, I didn't tell you to stop, stop trying not to drink. I said, stop saying you're not going to drink today because it never works. So I said, what do I do? And he said, well, I'm going to show you a new way of life and just start practicing that and see what happens. I stay out of the way. And I do that with my character defects, which I'll talk about. Anything I try to do in the spiritual life, I fail 100%. Okay, but when I let God do the work, miracles happen. In, in, in 1995, I made probably the most vital decision that I'll ever make in my entire life, and that was in that third step. And that was to turn my will and my life over to the care of God and be willing to bear witness for that God. And shortly after that, I made a, a more than a decision, but I asked God to... Give me the power to help others, you know, that I was willing to go out and do God's bidding. And I think that's the only reason that I could sit in front of a bunch of people tonight and share my story is because I told God that I am now ready to do your bidding. And I meant it from every fiber of my existence. And here I sit able to do it. That's God working through me. It is not who I am. I, I, it's very difficult for me to do it. So I just got to stay the hell out of the way. Uh, really important. Happy anniversary, 42 years to this group. And I know for a fact that this group has been carrying the message for a long time because Paulie got sober here. <laughs> so Paulie can get sober in this group. Trust me, all you guys can get sober in this group. You guys carry a message that works, and that's Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was born and raised right here in Queens. My home group is, as you guys, I'm not from Sedona, Arizona. Um, I've been living there the last six years. I'm, I'm born and raised in Queens. And um, a bunch of my friends came out from Queens, which is really cool. Oh, it's, it, it's making it twice as hard because I'm all choked up. You know, like my family. You know, you're all my family, but, but I got sober with a lot of people in this room. Richard and um, just... Maddie, who, who saw me through my insanity and through finding this way of life. So, a little choked up with it. But yeah, I grew up in Queens, and I, I was one of those people, obviously, that never felt like I belonged. 
I just didn't fit in this world. And in fifth grade, we'd go out into the schoolyard, and the, the, the school teacher would say, stay on this side of the schoolyard. No matter what, do not go on that side where those people are. And I looked over at those people and said, I want to go where they are. <laughs> so it wasn't long before I started beelining it to over where those people were. And they were passing around some booze and doing some other things. And, and I started indulging with them. One of them was, was when I was really young was my babysitter, Roger. And he died of a heroin overdose and he was my idol. Like there was something wrong with my thinking. Um, so I started hanging out with them, and by the time fifth grade had ended, I was screwing up so bad that they were going to leave me back. And my parents went up to the school and had a little talk because they were moving, and they decided that they would promote me and give me another chance in the new school. And it wasn't really that far. It was just from, from one side of Bayside to the other side of Bayside. And I spent every day of that summer riding my bicycle to the old neighborhood so that I can continue to learn how to drink and party. And, and, and more importantly, I was too scared to go out in the new neighborhood and meet new friends. So I, that, was a, that was the main reason that I was going to the old neighborhood. And the summer ended, and I had to go to school for the first day, and I was scared to death. And I had discovered that when I drank, I felt more confidence. And there was a closet at the, at the front door, and there was, it was stacked with booze, and so I would open that closet, and I would guzzle down a bunch of liquor, and I would go off to school. And, and it worked really well the first day, so I continued to do that. And eventually, I started finding the kids at school that were drinking too, and um, I made it through sixth grade, not in regular school, but there was a woman who came from a place called Project 25, and I had to go see this woman in sixth grade once a week. And she had threatened that if I continued to get caught drinking in school or doing any of these bad things that I was doing, misbehaving, that I was going to be removed from the regular school and put in Project 25 where she, where she came from. And that was the second huge threat in my life because what I felt was now if they remove me from this school where I finally found friends and they put me in this program, I'm going to have to meet new friends. And that scared the hell out of me. But so did the idea of not drinking, because I really liked I really liked drinking. I didn't want to give it up. So I became a full-time student in sixth grade of Project 25. And in Project 25, what they did was educated my parents not to put up with me. And I started getting more and more drunk and more and more violent. My mother was 120 pounds, soaking wet. She would stand at the front door and, and, and cry hysterically. Please, I've lost my daughter. I can't lose another child. Please don't go out. Please don't leave this house. I physically push her away from the door so that I can go out and, and get drunk. And, and I put her through hell. And, and my parents had separated by this time. And she would call my father every once in a while. And um, he would come and just throw me a beating or whatever and tell me to stop treating my mother like that. And, and I don't, you know, a lot of this part of my story is, is very foggy because I was young and, and, and I was indulging a lot. So this is how I remember it. And it's always pretty painful to, to tell that part of the story because, you know, 
we don't want to treat the people we love like that. You know, I mean, my mother was a good woman. And I didn't want to put her through the things that I put her through, but I really wanted to drink and don't get in the way of my drinking. I mean, she would actually, like, address my drinking, and I would get into a violent rage and pull the furniture down or flip the mattress and don't confront me on this stuff. And I would go out and get drunk, and I would go out and live in the elevator shafts of the apartment buildings so that I could just be on my own and drink or live in a friend's garage or his closet in his room. And these things aren't normal. And eventually I became what's called the PINS petition, person in need of supervision. And the court started telling me where I had to live. And you know, the first place I was in was a place called Geller House in Staten Island. And then they started getting worse and worse. And I started being in shelters here in Brooklyn and waiting for court dates. And I would sneak out of the shelters and I would go drink night train with the guys that were living in the streets and then try to sneak back into the shelter. And then they try to put me on clothes restrictions. So I would sneak, I would run out before they could take my clothes and make me sleep in just like underwear and stuff. And I would call my parents and say, I'll show up to court, but I'm not staying in that shelter. I'll just stay on the streets. And, and then I would show up to court. And I would start getting into more and more of these little detention centers. And in 19, God, I don't even remember, but I went up to Hawthorne, New York, to a place up in Hawthorne, New York for 18 months. And at this place, the same exact thing was going on. They would say, I'm a nice kid. If you just didn't drink, if you just didn't do these things, you'd be okay. And that had absolutely no depth and weight to me because it was when I drank that I felt that I was okay. So I didn't listen to anything else that they had to say. But for some reason, being away for this 18 months, I started to realize that a lot of my friends, their lives are getting better. They're working and, and they're getting little jobs. They've got long-term girlfriends. You know, they, they've been celebrating their birthdays and holidays with families and friends. And, and I've been missing out on all these things because I've been locked away, you know, by the courts. So I made myself a promise that when I got out of Hawthorne after the 18 months, I wasn't going to drink the way I was drinking and I wasn't going to get into so much trouble. I really knew in my head that th this life is, is, is not going anywhere and it's got to stop. So I came home and I went to Bayside High School for the first day. I was immediately called out of the, the homeroom class into the dean's office or somebody's office and they took out my records and they said, this is... You've been in a lot of trouble. You're, you, you create a lot of trouble. And we're not going to put up with your trouble here. And if you cause any trouble in this school, you're out. And I immediately stood up and said, you know, where they can go. Because I'm sure I'm not going to be a saint. And I left the school. And I went home. And I asked my mother if she would call my father and if they would discuss possibly signing me out of school. And... Maybe I can learn. My father was a fairly successful businessman, and you know, he was a partner in some stores and stuff. And maybe he could teach me the business, and I can go work for him. Because you know, it's really like since fifth grade, I really haven't been doing much schoolwork anyway. So I'm really not going to know much of this stuff. I'm sure I'm going to get into trouble. So why don't I just go work for him? So she called him, and they discussed it. And he called his business partners, and they discussed it. And they decided it was a good idea, and they signed me out of school, and I was going to go work from my father and his business. And there was a store that wasn't that far away that I could take a bus to. And that was in um, October.
and it was the week of my birthday, and I woke up that morning for the first day of work, and I felt like I had arrived. Like, I am going to make my family proud. Like, I had no aunts and uncles that had any respect for me, and, you know, my parents, and, like, all the cousins. Like, my family just, but I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to be a working man now, and I'm going to make everybody proud. And I was standing at the bus stop waiting to go to Union Turnpike to to go to work for the first day and a buddy saw me and he came over and he gave me a little birthday present he gave me a little bottle of jack daniels and i put it in my coat and i said this weekend i'm going to celebrate that i've been a working man and my birthday and it started to get cold so i took a couple of sips and then i started to get really nervous about going to work for the first day so on the bus, I polished off that little bottle of Jack, and I walked into that store, and I made a complete fool of myself and of my father, who really went to bat for me, saying, you know, my son wants to turn his life around. And that wasn't my intention that morning. That, when my intention was to do the right thing, and I had no clue why what happened happened. And, you know, to go into all those stories of how many times I did that and how many times I lifted myself up and fell right down and disappointed people who loved me, um, family members, eventually wives, girlfriends. It's pathetic. You know, I just... So those stories aren't really important. You could understand, I hope, about not wanting to drink and drinking anyway. You know, I don't understand those people who sit in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and say, I choose not to drink. Because I would choose not to drink and I would drink. So I don't understand to this day, how, how do you do that? You know, I've been sober a little over 20 years and I know today I still can't choose whether I drink or not. I am sober because of a way of life that I live, not because it's a choice that I make. I've lost that power of choice. Our big book tells us that, and more importantly, my experience validates that. There is absolutely no way that I could just guarantee if I make a choice not to drink that I'll pull that off. So, in, in 1987, I guess it was, I was married for 86 87 i was married to my first wife it was another attempt for sobriety she was a detox nurse and i thought that was a good idea to stay sober <laughs> and it didn't work um, that was a very short-lived marriage um, i have a lot of good friends from the, that i hung out with from that marriage but um that marriage didn't work and, and the truth is, if she was sitting in this room today, I wouldn't know who she was. I wouldn't recognize her. And that's pretty sad, but it, it is what it is. Um, but I was hanging out with a lot of people who, uh, there were four brothers that owned the house. I actually got to go visit one of them while I've been here. Um, and, and thank you, by the way, for, for getting me here tonight. It, it, it's an absolute privilege to, to speak for you. And, and you gave me an opportunity to visit with some old friends and meet new friends. And, um, and Mark and Dawn have been awesome to me. And, and Johnny driving me from the airport. And, you know, it, it's been a great experience. So I, I got to visit with one of those brothers. But there were four brothers that, that owned this house. And one of, you know, we all owned, we all owned motorcycles at the time. We all owned Harleys. And none of them ever left the garage. 
and we, you could have probably traveled around the world on a week's worth of our empties, and you know, from the nickels. And one of the brothers, Warren, started not hanging out with us in the backyard and drinking anymore, and some guys would pull up in front of the house, and he would get into the garage and hop on his bike and take off with them. And one morning I stopped him short, and I said, Warren, where the hell are you going lately? How come you're not hanging out with us? And he said, I couldn't live like this anymore. And I decided that I needed to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's changed my life. And I said, that's nice. <laughs> and I went back, and I went back to you know hanging out with everybody else that was having fun, right? And Warren was really good to me too. I mean, Warren used to—I had—I had been in a really bad motorcycle accident, and Warren was the guy that would like come to my house and, and carry me to his car and bring me to his house. Ooh, I'll switch this chair. <laughs> and, and he would bring me to his house, and you know I'm just gonna stand. He would, he would bring me he would bring me to his house and I don't, yeah bad idea and sit me down and, and we, we, would, we would just get drunk so I guess I don't know how long a time went by but some, some time had gone by and I called up Warren one morning with that that we, we said so we're here we're, we're sober by the grace of God and, and there's some truth to that but I've learned unfortunately that Grace only lasts so long, and for some of us, it's thanks. For some of us, it's a minute. For some of us, it's an hour. Some of us, it's weeks, months, years. But there's no guarantee how long that grace is going to be. So, what am I going to do after that grace? So, I had one of these moments of grace, and I called up Warren and I said. I want to get sober. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't live like the way I'm living anymore. And Warren told me where there was a meeting in Jackson Heights. And he said, it's a really good meeting. I got a ton of great friends there. They all ride. And I'm not going tonight, but just go there. And they'll know you're new. And, and, they'll, be real, and they'll be real friendly to you. And, and I said, deal. So I went there and I didn't want to drink that day. And I got there really early because I didn't know what to do with myself. And it was in a big school in Jackson Heights. And so I parked the car and I started just circling around the school and just like walking and saying, do I really want to do this? And you know, and, you know, I started second doubting whether I really want to get sober and go to this AA thing. I had no idea what it was, but I didn't know if I wanted to do it. And I, I had heard about Alcoholics Anonymous because there were many times that I would check myself into outpatient. Many times I would check myself into outpatient, and they'd put me on sliding scale, and I would stumble my way in, and they'd ask for some, like, the five bucks, and I would say I didn't have it, so they would eventually throw me out because I was stumbling in, but I didn't have the five bucks to pay them for the outpatient, so they'd just throw me out and say, go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'd read your literature a little bit and see God all over it and go, uh-uh, ain't happening, so... Anyway, so I'm walking around this school, and I'm circling around this school, and a guy sees me, and he says, are you looking for the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, why don't you follow me? I'm opening it up. So I followed him into the school, and we walked through some hallways and whatever, and then we walked into this room, and he started putting out pamphlets and hanging up shades and, you know, setting it up for an AA meeting. And then he pulls out this little blue card, this one right here, and he says, do you want to read this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And 
I was really glad that he handed it to me because a lot of you guys started walking in and I couldn't look at anybody in the eye. So I just kept my head right down there and I just kept reading the closed statement a hundred times over. And it got real quiet and he started the meeting and he said to read the closed statement, we have Bart. And my heart jumped out my toes. I had no idea that he gave me something to read out loud. I thought it was just giving me something to read. And as I told you, I'm really shy. So I spent what I swear to God felt like five hours, but I guarantee you it was less than five minutes planning my escape. And I walked out of the meeting and I made the wrong turn. I got lost in the school and I couldn't find my way out. And I was getting really pissed off and I was getting really nervous that I was going to get arrested because I didn't look as happy and clean as you guys did. So anyway, I found my way back to the meeting and I just leaned out on the hallway and waited for the meeting to end and just figured I'd follow everybody out and I'd go back to drinking. And I made up my mind, that's going to be a lot easier than this AA stuff. And the meeting ended and you guys walked out and a bunch of guys pinned me up against the wall practically and said, we're all going out to the diner and then we're going to the movies and we want you to come with us. And I had a thousand reasons that I couldn't go and you wouldn't take one of them. And so I went out to the diner and and I started to really get a lot of good friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I started meeting new people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, my buddy Matty here will keep me real honest. And, you know, I wouldn't do what you guys did. And, you know, we had a sober motorcycle club and they had the bot claws in it. You know, it was like... Clean, clean ashtrays. Why would I clean an ashtray? I'll just clip it, stick it in my pocket, and throw it outside. None of us have to clean the ashtray. We'll make coffee. I've never drank a cup of coffee in my life. Why am I going to make coffee? And, and, and you had to be an active member in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, hey, when you guys are celebrating your anniversaries, do I show up for you? Yeah, they say. And I say, well, then I'm an active member in Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't tell me how to work my program. And I couldn't get any better. And I don't understand why. Now I had gotten remarried, by the way, to a great woman, had a daughter. Um, she was a normie who liked to smoke pot. And every once in a while, I'd give her shotguns and breathe a little sneak in there. Or I'd go to the supermarkets and suck on the nitrous out of the whipped cream bottle. But, but, but I'm still sober. Because I'm not drinking and I'm not doing the other things that really get me out there. And, and I'm insane and... I don't know how people like Maddie loved me so long because I was very angry, manipulative. He's grinning over there like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was miserable. I was a dry drunk. And it was horrible. Um, I don't know what was worse. You know, when I was drinking, I filled that spirit that was hurting. And I didn't feel... Yes, it's a delusion. There's no, you know, it, it's a delusion that it makes life better. And when I'm drunk, it's an illusion that my life is great. I love those words in the book. They're absolutely true. I think that a drink is going to fix it. I believe that. It's an absolute delusion. And when I'm drunk, my life absolutely appears great, even though it's falling apart around me. And when I'm sober and I'm not living this way of life, I feel all of that spiritual sickness, and it's horrible. So I go back to the delusion that I need to drink. And so I don't know which is worse, being an active alcoholic or being dry with no solution. 
And I believe that's why they, when we read it, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. We need to fill that soul sickness quickly or we will drink again. You know, so many of us prove that over and over and over again. So I'm glad that this group carries that message because that's the message that I think God has given us to save lives. So, a buddy, a buddy of ours had, had been out for a while, and it really hurt us, especially Maddie and I. You know, we were like the three amigos when my daughter was born. We would change my daughter's diapers when my wife would go out. And, um, and one of us, not Maddie or I, had, had relapsed, and it was really hurting us because he went out full blast and one morning he called me up and he asked me for help and i was so happy that he wanted help and on the way to go help him he wanted to stop off and pick up something and i decided he should get me some too and and i ended up back out there on a pretty bad run and you know it was no longer just giving shotguns and and um hitting nitrous you know it was i was out on a bad run and I completely lost myself and started making some, uh, I think it was before I picked up actually, it was, it was, you know, it was no miracle. Like I had a great wife and I decided that, you know, it would be better to not live with her and to live with Maddie and his girlfriend and do whatever I wanted to do. And like, like I made a lot of really bad decisions when I was not drinking and not living this way of life. Anyway, so along this bad run, one night I was in not such a great neighborhood in one of those bodegas that everything is um, inspired. And, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I asked for something that I had been purchasing there for a little while and they didn't want to give it to me. And I started knocking all that expired shit off the shelves and, and, and causing chaos. And I was lucky they didn't cut me up and put me into a dumpster. And that night, that night I ended up in a meeting, probably one of the only meetings I had never been in in Queens, the Utopia Young People's Group. And I had never been in that meeting before. And there was a bunch of young people in there and they were smiling and they were laughing and they had a Friday night beginners meeting and they were going out to bars after and, and dancing. And I didn't get it. Like, how could they be so happy? and enjoy life and not drink and well i pretty much figured it out they're just not real drunks like i am <laughs> so they can do those things because you know when i was dry i couldn't go to a concert and not be uncomfortable i couldn't go into a bar for the right reason to hear a band play or something and not be uncomfortable i had to be selfish and and say to my wife or the people i'm with i need to get the hell out of here let's go because i'm really uncomfortable and they weren't experiencing that they were doing these things and they were having fun and, and I didn't get it. And there was a guy there who was very outspoken. He was a great guy. He would, he would sit on the back of the chair here and his feet here and he would really express the message really well. And he was celebrating his anniversary one night and his sponsor was speaking for him. And his sponsor introduced himself as a recovered alcoholic. And then he started talking about what it was like, and, and he really had me laughing. He was very 
um, dramatized. He was rolling around on the floor and just like, you know, it, it was an incredibly funny what it was like. And then he got serious and started talking about being recovered and being able to go where anybody else can go without danger and, and talking about living a normal life and being happy. And I was starting to really crack my knuckles and, and get real tight and really pissed off. And I looked at Artie and I said, Artie, just sponsor up there speaking for you, isn't it? And he said, yeah. And I said, you know what, tonight I think you better find a new one. And he said, why? And I said, because I'm going to kill him. <laughs> he has absolutely no right to say that you can be recovered and you can be happy, joyous, and free and do those things if you're really an alcoholic. He's full of shit. And Artie looked at me with a big grin and he said, I bet he'd really like to talk to you. <laughs> and so after the meeting, I guess them two had a little discussion and Artie came over to me and he said, tomorrow... Eric works at this store over here on Union Turnpike, and he thinks it would be a good idea if you come talk to him. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go talk to him, all right. So that morning I couldn't wait to go there and beat the living crap out of him. And, and I pulled up, and he was standing right in front of the store, and he saw me park the car, and he saw me start, walk, he saw me start walking across the street. He went into the store, and he went behind the counter because he knew he needed to keep distance because he heard I was coming to kill him. And he spent about two hours talking about all of his war stories. He really described alcoholism like we do in more about alcoholism, about his inconsistencies. Like he didn't tell me, just don't pick up the first drink, Bart, and you'll be okay. He started talking about how many times he didn't want to pick up the first drink and he picked it up anyway. How many times he promised his wife that he wouldn't pick up the first drink and he did anyway. How many times that he made promises to people and couldn't keep them because he drank. And I kept saying, shit, that's me. That's what I keep doing. And after about two hours of him telling all these stories, I said, well, then what the hell do I got to do? for that not to happen to me because it's obvious it's not happening to you anymore and he opened up his big book and he said if you read the first 164 pages of this book and you follow it as a design for living you can be free just like me and I said to him I've never read a book in my life I heard that that's really bad writing and boring so it's not going to be my first book but thanks anyway and he came and I started to walk out of the store and he came out from around that counter and he grabbed me at the shoulder in a really loving way and he said, I'll tell you what, you don't have to read it. I'll read it with you. And the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. And when you identify to something, let's talk about it. And when you don't identify to something, it's probably because they're describing, starting to describe a way of life that you've never lived. But we're going to walk through this together. Just don't wake up tomorrow and say you're not going to drink. Just wake up tomorrow and say, you're going to give this way of life a fair shot. And we cracked that book open, and we started reading it. And I, and I learned why I couldn't pick up the first drink. I learned that there really is a doctor's opinion, that there is a phenomenon of craving that I had no idea about. And I agree that I absolutely suffer from that. You know, right from that first time that I picked up the drink, right to that bus stop going to work, you know, and, and all through my life it made sense that there were so many times that I didn't want to get drunk 
and I got drunk anyway. And I started to get some relief because I understood, oh, this is it. I, I got this physical thing going on, so I just won't pick up a drink and I'll be all right. And he said, well, let's keep reading. And we kept reading and I started to learn more about alcoholism. I started to read and there is a solution. I started to learn that the problem centers in my mind, not in my body. That I can't not pick up the first drink. That I can't choose, just make a choice not to drink. And, and what he did was he said, let's talk about how many times you made that decision. How many times did you mean it? How many times were you crying on, the, on, the, on your floor? With all your will saying, I'm done with this lifestyle, I can't live like this anymore. And five minutes later, you're going out living that lifestyle. And I said, dozens and dozens of times. And it made sense. And it started to scare the hell out of me. I understood it. More, and we agnostics have started to talk about that we have a soul sickness. You know? And I didn't believe in God, but really experiencing this first step through the book in that way and being so new I became willing in the second step you know I read the steps off the wall and it said came to believe and I wasn't willing to come to believe I didn't think it was possible for me to come to believe and our directions really lighten it up for us they say you don't have to come to believe you just have to be willing to believe and yeah I'm willing look at my life how can I not be willing to believe I doubt it's going to come true, but yeah, I'm absolutely willing. And that's gone a lot further for me today, you know. The book tells us that we couldn't remember the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, and that was a fact for me. If I couldn't remember a month or a week ago, I certainly can't remember 20 years ago. And, and quite a few years ago, I started getting a little bit deeper into, into this stuff, and, and one day I, I decided to look up the definition of an obsession. Um, I wasn't really seeking God further and further anymore. I was really just like doing my, my, my prayers and doing my meditation and, and helping others, but I wasn't seeking a, a, a deeper relationship with God. And for whatever reason, I, I had this 1930s dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, and I decided all on my own, just sitting home one day, I'm going to look up that word obsession. And God was really good to me, and I don't want to, like, I want to quote it, exactly what it said. And mind you, I didn't need to live this way of life with this definition back when I was new, but today it helped me tremendously. But... Listen to what, in the 1930s, they used the word obsession quite a bit in this book. The definition in the 1930s was the state of being besieged. You specifically of a person attacked on all sides by a spirit from without. An irrational motive for performing trivial and repetitive actions against your will. Holy shit. <laughs> from a spirit from without well what's going to fix that a spirit from within and that's where we find God and that got me into wanting to seek more God more relationship with God because I don't ever want to get attacked by that spirit because I performed irrational repetitive horrible things on a regular basis against my own will 
And I don't ever want that to happen again. And I know the only thing that's going to stop me from doing that today is my relationship with God. So I keep seeking to further that relationship. God is always there for every one of us to infinity. How much are we willing to seek Him? How much do we want Him in our life? The more we invite Him, the more He comes. So, but the first time through it, I made that third step decision. And I think the biggest part of that decision for me was not only turning all my thinking and all my actions over to the care of God, but being willing to bear witness of God's power, God's love, and God's way of life. And, and, I, and, and my attitude then was, I don't believe in this God, but if, if this God that you say in this book says exists, and, and my alcoholism is removed like you say it's going to be, that I'm not going to suffer from it anymore, you bet your ass I'll bear witness for it. But I don't believe it's going to happen. And that's where I started in my third step. I didn't believe it was going to happen, but I was willing to make that decision. So we got quiet. We thought about this decision. I was absolutely willing to do it. We closed our eyes. We said the prayer. I opened my eyes. He handed me a pen and a piece of paper. And he said, start writing everybody pisses you off. Start writing all the rules and regulations that you don't agree with, that, that you think don't belong. Start writing all the places you've been that you don't think treated you right. And I just started writing all that shit. And then I started writing why. And then I wrote, and he helped me to write how it affects me. And I think the most freeing part of that fourth step for me today is, and I was having that conversation this afternoon with a new friend, is putting out of my mind completely what others had done. Fancied or real. Where am I to blame in my self-esteem being affected? Where am I to blame in my pride being affected? My ambitions. I need to take spiritual responsibility for that because that's my spirit that's sick by feeling those, affected, those things are being affected. And if I don't take responsibility for it and I keep pointing fingers at you, whether it's fancied or real, my spirit's going to stay sick. So there's plenty of things that happen to some of us that we had no part in, and the book never uses that word. Part. I'll give you a thousand, I'll give you a million dollars. You find where to say your part. It says, "Where are you to blame after putting aside what they had done?" So if something was done to us that was horrible, and we had absolutely no part in it, we could have done absolutely nothing to set that ball rolling. But 20 years later, I'd have a sickened spirit over it. I could still get free because I have to take spiritual responsibility for it. So that fourth step is, is, is one beautiful, mystical format of getting free and thinking the way God thinks. God wants us to be free, happy, joyous, and free. Not in bondage of self, pissed off at things people may, have, may or may not have done to us. So that, that fourth step is extremely free. And I shared that all that stuff with him, and I shared my whole life story with him. And I did it a lot different than the first time in 87. I, I wrote one of those whole life story things with a, with a real loving man who, who was sponsoring me. And, and he had me write that life story. And most of it was bullshit. It was just to impress somebody, you know, and, and write this life story because I was coming from ego. But, but saying this prayer and really wanting to have a relationship with God, 
I told this man a lot of horrible things that I had done, and, and I love him today for not patting me on the back and saying, it's okay that you did that. He let me know. It's not okay that you did that. But we can fix it. We can amend those things. We can set them right. It's not okay to just ignore them. And I had to learn to live that way and think that way. I, didn't, I couldn't just think that I could step on people and then just say, oh, well, I screwed up and move on. I needed to repair those things. So I'm grateful that he did that. And he sent me home and did that fifth and sixth and seventh, the end of the fifth step, the sixth step, and the seventh step. And I had quite a decent experience with that because... I was willing to have God at that time remove all the things that stood in the way of me because I didn't ever want to drink again. I was still desperate. Today, I got to tell you, I, do, I still write four steps a lot. And those seven steps aren't as willing as they were when booze was that close to me. You know, it, it, it's harder today. You know, it, it gets harder, not easier, but the reward gets better. But... To say that, you know, these little things don't have anything to do with whether I drink or not is a dangerous place. But sometimes I have to hang on to them until my fingers are bleeding and then realize, okay, I need to, I, I need to let God take this. And, and I can't, I was, I can't take, the seventh step is really cool. I can't fix my character defects, you know. Um, I'm not a religious man, but I, but I do really read some religious stuff and... I don't know where in the Bible, I can't quote, but there's a, there's a thing in the Bible that says that if we pluck the weeds ourselves, we might pull the wheat. Well, that's just like trying to fix our own character defects. If I try to stop stealing, I tried it. I was a good thief. And if I tried to stop stealing, the first time I tried to stop stealing, I figured, well, I'm not going to steal anymore. I'll just switch the price tags. Now I'm not stealing. That's how I fix my character defects. So what we have to do is say, God, I am willing for you to have this. And really come from a place of meaning. God, I am willing for you to have this. All of me, good and bad. And let God decide what he takes. Let God decide. I can't, I can't do it. We can't do it. This is about God doing it. Our book is pretty clear. We couldn't remove these things any more than alcohol. So why are we trying? When we're trying, what are we doing? We're getting in the way of God. He'll just say, all right, go ahead, fine. Try to have fun. See how you do with that. You got free will. I gave it to you. See how that works out for you. <laughs> and it's a guarantee we screw it up. So this is about following these simple directions and getting the hell out of the way and let God do it. I made that eight-step list, and an interesting thing happens in, in, in the amends process for most of us. Um, we make that list, and I began, you know, our, our promises, we say in a lot of meetings, the nine-step promises. All right, guys, I know you're going to get hungry. You want me to have a pizza just walked in? I don't think I could eat another drop. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, we make that list, and, and the very first time that I made my eight-step list, those promises pretty much came true for me. They didn't come true for me in the ninth step. When I was willing to set right the wrongs, 
I was willing to look you in the eye because I wasn't hiding from you anymore. When I was willing to know that I was going to live this way of life, I was able to be at home at perfect peace and ease. And I was not a perfect peace and ease guy. I was the guy who was driving to his little basement apartment where he, he left his wife and daughter and had absolutely nothing to do in his apartment, went food shopping in six blocks before I got to the house. All the packages were in my lap and my hands were on the, on the doorknob already, ready to open the car door like I was in a hurry to get there to do nothing. Or I was the guy who couldn't wait to get home to watch a movie and I'd be sitting there, the movie would start, and I decided I had to go clean the bathroom. Like, I just, I was restless, irritable, discontent. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't be alone at perfect peace and ease. And when I made those eight-step decisions, when I made that list, something happened. Those promises came true for me. I didn't need to do the ninth step for those promises to come true. But you told me that if I didn't make those amends, I would drink again. So I needed to make those amends. And I I started making those amends because I knew if I didn't do it, I would drink again. And very shortly into making those amends, this psychic change happened that I wasn't making the amends anymore for the selfish reason of that I'll drink again if I don't make them. I was making those amends because I was seeing that I was setting people free. There were people that were pissed off at me and weren't pissed off anymore when I was willing to set it straight. Those promises came true for them. I wasn't doing it selfishly anymore. And that's that psychic change that is guaranteed to happen if we just take these actions. And then I started practicing while I was making these amends. I started practicing when I screw up, call my sponsor or call somebody in my network and tell them that I screwed up and be honest about my life and to watch for selfishness, watch for dishonesty, watch for fear. And when they crop up, ask God at once to help me because I can't do it myself. And in the morning, plan my day. And in the evening, review my day. And I have never, in 20, over 20 years, I haven't missed a day. There's been days that are better or longer. I mean, currently, my evening review is when my head hits the pillow. But as soon as my head hits the pillow, I don't even have to think about what I have to do. I just start thinking about my day and how did I behave today? Do I owe an apology anywhere? Was I bringing God into all my thoughts and all my actions? Was I kind and loving? It just just is the last thought before I fall asleep. When I wake up in the morning, it's automatically, you know, what do I need to do today? You know, did I screw up yesterday? Did I see I screwed up? Do I have to watch for these things? And I, and I just started doing that. And it becomes just a way of life. You know, it sounds like it's a lot. But if you start practicing it, and I'm still just practicing it, it becomes a way of life, you know? Ask God questions, sit, wait for the answer. Don't just go do it. Just sit and wait for the answer. I studied with a, with a Buddhist monk because I really wanted to get this meditation thing down many years ago. This temple opened up in, in Bayside, Queens, and I started really hanging out there a lot. And I didn't think I was getting it. And I said to this monk who was set in his late 70s, and he, he left his home when he was like 12 years old to, to, to live, to study, to be a monk. And I said, how do you meditate so good? And he said, I don't know. I've been practicing it since I'm 12. I just practice it. And I went, oh, 
That's all we got to do. And that's all we have to do with all of these steps. We never have to do them perfect. We just have to be willing to practice them and get out of the way and let God do the work. All we got to do is keep practicing these. Twelve step. Twelve step. Eric finished reading, working with others with me. And he never went back to the Utopia group after they spoke at Artie's group anniversary. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to go over to Utopia group with you tonight. It's Friday night. It's the beginner's meeting. I think I'm going to go over there. And, and I, love my, I love my sponsor. Like he was coming with me. Cool. I want to hang out with my sponsor. You know, I love my sponsor. I love when he comes. He's going to share some good stuff, you know. And the first... It was a beginner's meeting, and they opened it up after the speaker speaks for 15 minutes to anybody new or just coming back. And the first guy to raise his hand, the Creedmoor Rehab, used to come into that meeting by van. And the first guy to raise his hand was this young kid who was about, I don't know, six foot four probably, at least. Shaved head, no teeth, completely tattooed. And all he had to say was, I can't stand all of you. You're all full of shit. I hate all of you. The judge told me I had to go to the Creedmoor Rehab or jail, and I'm not an asshole, so I went to Creedmoor Rehab. And my sponsor, Eric, said, after the meeting, go talk to that guy, see if he can win his confidence. I was like, what are you, nuts? And it wasn't because... Gene was so angry or looked the way he looked. What the hell do I have to offer? Like, I've only been doing this for a couple of months with you. What the, What do I got to offer? And he opened up to a vision for you. He always carried his big book with him. And he opened up to where it says, you're one man with his book in your hand, and you just tapped into a power greater than yourself. And this was the first time in my life that I was happy being sober. And the only thing that I had done so far is what this book suggested I do. And now it's suggesting I do this. How can I doubt it? So the meeting kept going, and I spent the entire meeting scared to death of how the hell am I going to do this? What the hell am I going to say? I didn't hear another thing that was said in the meeting. (laughs) And then the meeting ended, and I said, all right, God, what do I do? And the answer came like that. Go outside when everybody circles up to pray and wait for him at the van and see what happens. And he didn't want to pray either. And it was just the two of us out there. And I started to talk to him and I said, you know, I found a solution to this. And it's really been working for me and I think it could work for you. And I can come visit you on Sundays and show you what I've been doing. And he said, will you bring me a sandwich? (laughs) And I I said, yeah, I will. But I'm bringing this book that saved my life, too. And he said, whatever you want, just bring me a sandwich. (laughs) And that's what I did. I showed up every Sunday with a big book and a sandwich. (laughs) And I watched him recover. And I watched him come home, and he had a a girlfriend that was living in the streets, I think in Pennsylvania, and a little boy in foster care. And I watched him 
get supervised visits. And then I watched him bring this kid home and become a single sober dad. And then I watched him sponsor Sal. And Sal's still sober today. He built the fellowship he craved. I built the fellowship I craved. And we just kept doing that and doing that. Um, what a life. This is so much more than just don't drink. This is something you just don't want to miss. You know, I was, I, I'm very active in, in Prescott, Arizona now with it, it, treatment centers galore. And the average age is like 22 years old. And I spoke the other night at a meeting that had like, I don't know, 150 young kids in there. And I told them, if you're bored in AA, it's because you're fucking boring. <laughs> there is so much to do here. And it all pays dividends, you know. It's such a big high to watch families reunite, you know. Gene didn't stick around with us and, you know, and, and, and really do this, but there's some people that, that did stick around that continue to carry it. And Gene eventually died, and he didn't die of this, he died of cancer. And I don't know if he was sober or not, but um, not everybody decides to continue to live this way of life. Now, I have been sponsoring a lot of men and women in this program for 20 years, and I have 100% success rate because I've stayed sober. But I don't do it for that purpose anymore. Well, at least I didn't... Let me rewind that. I didn't think I did that till I moved to Arizona. You know, in the beginning, I was told, you need to work with others. It's vital to your recovery. Nothing will ensure sobriety as much as intensive work with other alcoholics. So I did it because I didn't want to drink again. And then I realized that shift. I started doing it because I love doing it. I love watching people's life change. Does it happen with everyone you work with? No, because not all of them are willing to really make that decision. You know, to accept spiritual help or die of an alcoholic death is not always an easy decision to make. And unfortunately, we can't make it for you. But if you make it, it works. So I stopped doing it for selfish reasons. And then I moved to Arizona with, with my third wife. And she wasn't my wife at the time yet. And she almost didn't become my wife. Because when we moved to Arizona, we moved into a community that everybody had double-digit sobriety. They weren't really doing AA the way I was used to AA. And there were no newcomers. And I was practicing the first 11 steps. You know, I was praying every day, and I was meditating every day, and I was being honest as I was miserable. And I started getting really restless, irritable, and discontent. I heard my wife speak at a meeting one night that she was madly in love with New York Bart and doesn't even like Arizona Bart. I was becoming miserable and didn't know what the hell to do. And I started cursing God. I'm doing this stuff. I'm living this lifestyle that you said is the journey for alcoholics to an amazing, beautiful life. Why am I so miserable? 
why why is the drink thought actually getting closer maybe and I started discussing it with my wife who she's also in recovery and she's got 29 years and I said there's no newcomers to work here with and I started realizing that's what I'm missing so Tara's prayers get answered a hell of a lot faster than mine and and and, and, and that morning she said God please give this man somebody to work with because I can't take it anymore <laughs> and we were having this sign made for the house and she went to pick up the sign and after picking up the sign she asked for directions to Stutz back out road where the clubhouse is and the guy said where are you going AA and she said actually I am and he goes yeah I keep trying that it don't work and she goes I've got a man for you <laughs> I still sponsor that guy still today um, a couple weeks after that at one of the meetings there was a young kid that happened to walk into the meeting and he heard me share and he said I'm going to be managing a sober house in Prescott how would you like to uh, run a big book study there every week I've been doing that for five and a half years now. Every Monday, unless I'm out of state, I don't miss a Monday. 30 guys, captive audience, and we go through that book. From, before they leave that treatment center, they've heard me go through this book at least twice. And I haven't been restless, irritable, and discontent, and my wife's in love with New York, I mean, with Arizona Bar. <laughs> so I started doing it again because I had to. You know, I forgot that I had to, but I got reminded that I have to. Um, all of us have to do something to stay sober. What you have to do, you need to find out for yourself. If you're doing this, this, and this, and you're still miserable, well, then add something to it. You know, I speak at the jail, just like I did here. I speak at that treatment center once a week. I speak at meetings. You guys asked me to come here. Not that I mind it. I can't lie. <laughs> but I go where I'm asked to speak. Um, I'm the intergroup rep at my home group for AA. I'm the GSR for my home group in another fellowship I go to. And I go to two fellowships because I believe half measures avail me nothing. So I'm not doing 50-50 in one. I'm doing 100 in one and 100 in another. Um, that's what I need to do to be happy, joyous, and free. But I am happy, joyous, and free. I am still an alcoholic. But I love living with my alcoholism. There's a, there's a poem that I want to end with that really describes what we, the, the blessing that we get. It's called House by the Sea by Carol Block. I don't know if any of you ever heard it. It's called I Build My House by the Sea. Not of sand, mind you. Not the shifting sand. And I build it of rock, a strong house by a strong sea. And we got well acquainted, the sea and I, good neighbors. Not that we spoke much, we met in silence, respectfully keeping our distance, but looking our thoughts across the fence of sand. Always the fence of sand, our barrier. Always the sand between. And then one day, I still don't know how it happened, but the sea came, without warning, without welcome even. Not sudden and swift, 
but swifting across the sand like wine, less like the flow of water than the flow of blood, slow but coming, slow but flowing like an open wound. And I thought of flight, and I thought of drowning, and I thought of death. And while I thought the sea crept higher, till, I, till it reached my door, I knew then that there was neither flight, nor death, nor drowning. Then when the sea comes calling to stop being good neighbors, we acquainted friendly from a distance neighbors, and you gave me your house for a coral castle, and you learned to breathe on the water. That's what we do here. I learned to live. We learned to live with our alcoholism. I'll always be an alcoholic, but I'm recovered. I learned to live with it, and it's my blessing. It's our blessing. I would not, I didn't, I got here, I did not believe in God. God is the most important thing in my life today. Would I have that relationship with my God if I didn't, if I wasn't an alcoholic? No. I needed both of those pieces to have the life that I have today. So, my alcoholism is an absolute blessing, and I hope yours is too. Thank you.